G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. We're not far away at all now from the start of the 2021 AFL men's season. Of course, the women's season going full steam ahead. Uh, we've had five rounds of that played. We'll wrap that up fully very shortly for you. But uh, oh, the excitement in the air, this first uh, round of scratch matches being played and all the attendant controversy and talking points that emerge from that. Uh, we've got heaps on that level to talk to you about today. And we've also got, and how exciting is this? We have a new segment. Uh, I'm not going to give too much away, but uh, I reckon it's going to be a corker. And uh, on that note, I'll introduce my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Finey? Oh, well, Ro, that's a good term, a corker. Haven't heard that for a while. Strife. Takes us back and takes us back. Maybe the segment will take us back. We'll have to wait and see. Yes, it's. Uh, I, I'm very excited about this. And actually, I should point out, too, we had some great suggestions uh, for segments from uh, a wide array of listeners. And uh, thanks to you all for your input. This is as much your show as ours. Uh, and it was our good friend, a good friend of the program, Ari Vlahos, who suggested... Uh, well, sort of suggested this one that we are going with. So stand by. It's going to be a ripper. And I'll tell you what else you should stand by for, Finey. That is your taste buds to literally explode from your tongue when you partake of a certain fast food from a certain establishment in a certain inner southeastern suburb. What am I talking about? You're talking about Andrew's Hamburgers, 144. Bridport Street, Albert Park. You're talking about, well, the best burgers, rated number one, Andrews, that succulent beef, fresh vegetables, good old style Aussie burgers. You're right. Watch out. That's the one you're craving for, and that's the one they're raving about. Andrews Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And I tell you, uh, what is something that would make a home renovator's taste buds explode from their mouths? Well, if that's what makes a, a new home owner or somebody who receives a renovation salivation, taste buds explode. I never thought of it like that. Well, West Point Properties will do it for you. Nick Spartels and his team in the southeastern Melbourne suburbs. And we hear all the time about pro properties and prices going up. And that's great news if you're already in the market. So why not optimise your piece of land, optimise your patch with the very best rebuild or the very best new home, West Point Properties and Nick Spartels. Well done. Uh, we've got a lot to get through. Let's waste no more time. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Well, plenty of news around in the lead up 
to this new season. Uh, I suppose the biggest news story of the past week, Finey, uh, was more about um, the football media than the actual competition. And uh, sometimes these sorts of stories can be overblown, but I don't think uh, this one was because this man has been a bit of an icon in the sports broadcasting game. I'm talking, of course, about Bruce McAvaney and his decision uh, pretty late in the piece, it should be said, to pull a pin on his football commentating career. He's not retiring altogether. We'll still be doing some horse racing and uh, I think he wants to be there at the Olympics, as indeed he should. But, uh, well, when it comes to televised football after oh, more than 30 years, no more Bruce McAvaney. And uh, I must say, it was, I think it surprised a lot of us and he was paid some glowing and fitting tributes. Uh, no doubt the iconic sports broadcasting figure of the uh, modern era. Uh, were you surprised by that news, Finey? Yeah, it caught me a little bit unawares. I think a lot of us asked the question whether or not it was health-related. So I think, uh, I believe he's been at pains to point out that it's not to do with his ongoing health battles and they seem to be under control. So that's good news. And it is an onerous workload. And I guess he's gone back to his roots because before he called football, he did call racing, horse racing. And he's always been a great lover of athletics and calling at the Olympic Games. So maybe he's just cutting back his workload. He's not, he's in his sixties and that is probably the time of life where you do look to start to cut back a, a little bit. And football seems to be the first place he's prune, pruned the bushes. Yeah, well, he's he's 67, so obviously no spring chicken. It's, it's funny, I, have, I did speak last week about uh, the amount of old uh, South Australian football I've been watching on YouTube. And um, some of those games are going back to, I think, 1981, 82. And there is Bruce for uh, Channel 7 in Adelaide calling the Sandful Grand Finals and, and various other finals. And uh, he, he does sound very, very different then, as you'd expect anyone to, given uh, what a 40-plus year gap. Um, I did see the odd comment about, oh, you know, he's, he might have done it a few years too late and he'd become a parody of himself. And we've had the odd dig at Bruce. There's no question that, the Bruce McAvaney pre-Channel um, 7 getting out of football as they did between, what was it, 2002 and 2006, was uh, the Bruce that returned in 2007 was a, a different caller and uh, there was a lot more of the rhetorical questions and, uh, you know, the sort of gushing over players and whatnot. But I, I always maintain that I reckon that was something that was suggested, if you will, from above. Um, no, you know, I think most people would agree Bruce's peak as a caller came in the in the 1990s, uh, probably the, you know, very early years of the, the 21st century. And, but, you know, I can never get past the fact that in terms of meticulous research and knowledge of, um, you know, all the circumstances surrounding a game, the players and the records of the teams, et cetera, and just player identification, um, he was unsurpassed. And, and that's something we once did take for granted 
we don't take it for granted now because, you know, without naming names, there's a few callers around that really struggle even on player identification. There's some who struggle to call a play. They'll get caught up in some irrelevant chit-chat whilst the game's going on. There are some who seem to struggle to judge the moment and get the peaks and troughs of their uh, enunciation uh, correct as befitting the drama or otherwise in the moment. That was never an issue for Bruce. And from that point of view, I reckon he's been the consummate professional. I agree with you. I think he's definitely raised the bar on preparation. I, I really believe it was Bruce that has demanded of all callers to go into a game, not only prepared to identify players, but to have some sound knowledge of their history, of records that have been surpassed during the game. So I give him a big tick for raising the bar on preparation for all callers. I think he's also responsible for something I'm less enamoured with, and that is that guttural voice as the situation demands a more gravitas in the call. And maybe Bruce himself doesn't have that deeper range. And he went to a falsetto guttural voice. What a great goal, that sort of thing. And I've got to say, not a huge fan of that. I've, I've always sort of deferred to the English soccer callers. I think they are, for me, the standard bearers in quality calling of sport. And I don't think you'll get too much guttural calling out of an English soccer commentator. So if your voice doesn't go deep enough, I don't like the falsetto guttural. Not for mine. And I think I've got to place the blame for that at Bruce. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he deserves to be named amongst the very best football callers of all time. He's up in the pantheon. And I guess... There's only one word to describe his career, Rowan. Special. Yes, I was waiting for that. It had to happen. Um, yeah, no, well played, Bruce. A, a great innings. And a lot, you know, and it shouldn't be lost either. A, a lovely guy and a very humble guy. And I, I th- as I get older, that's a quality I certainly appreciate in people uh, a lot more than just their ability. So well played, Bruce. I guess we should talk about what happens post-Bruce. And I read a, I did read a piece yesterday, I think, in the Herald Sun about uh, uh, they nominated three callers who were basically being put on trial during the pre-season to be the chief caller, although I saw Brian Taylor was saying there wouldn't be a chief caller as such. Um, but we're, they seem to be talking about James Brayshaw, uh, Hamish McLaughlin and Luke Darcy. I've got to say, Finey, um, with all due respect to those three gentlemen, and I'm neither here nor there about most of them, but a favourite, rapidly become a favourite caller of mine who never seems to be even mentioned as uh, a potential number one caller is Jason Bennett. I really like the way Jason calls. I think his uh, knowledge and research is top notch. He doesn't make it all about him. Um, his, his voice carries well, I, his player identification's good. I reckon he's a, he's a terrific caller of football for TV. And I just wonder if the fact that his name isn't even being thrown up as a candidate 
seems to suggest that for the executives who make this decision, it's as much about personality and marketability as um, or more so than the qualities that it should be about. And even on that score, I don't understand it because he's a very uh, presentable, um, you know, uh, skeleton in the closet free man, as far as I know, very uncontroversial figure, Jason. And he's a really nice guy too. Loves his footy, loves his footy history. Um, it's a weird one to me. How do you see it? Yeah, it's funny, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of Jason Bennett prior to his sojourn to the United States. He, he went to the USA for a, a period. He's come back. He takes a prominent role in AFLW. I listen to him quite a bit. If you're after somebody who is well-prepared and player identification, ticks all those boxes, and, yeah, I, I, I've got nothing praise for Jason Bennett now, I must say. I think he's, and I'm not saying, yeah, I think he is sort of improved. I think he may have, may have imposed him, put himself a little bit in the call previously, but I reckon he's excellent. Whether or not he's got that high enough profile, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Somebody like a Luke Darcy certainly can call football, don't get me wrong, but also has a very recognisable face, has done some work beyond football on TV, on some, on a lifestyle program. We know James Brayshaw has had an extensive broadcasting history, both on radio and television, both football and cricket. And Amish McLaughlin certainly, again, very identifiable, very personable with microphone in hand, don't get me wrong. And of course, has a good surname, being the brother of the CEO of the game all are in prime position to join high-profile Brian Taylor as key, if you want to call it, the, the number one calling team because of marketability. And that's the world we live in, Rowan. I think that's the world that we'll see the decision made with a combination of those four people. All right, well, let's move on and uh, plenty of other stuff happening. Uh, a, a big story that's emerged the last couple of days, Essendon trying at the, uh, well, you'd have to say the 11th hour to have their opening round Saturday game against Hawthorne scheduled for Marvel Stadium shifted to the MCG. The reason being, of course, crowd capacity. Uh, Marvel has a capacity of only a tick over 50,000, given the policies for these first few rounds, at least are basically, you know, half crowds. Uh, we're only going to get a capacity of about 25,000 there at the MCG, of course, double that capacity. They could get at least 50,000. Essendon uh, wanted to move their game to the MCG, not shift the Melbourne Fremantle game, which is scheduled there for the same day, but make it effectively a double header with one game during the day and one at night. Um, the AFL well, didn't even consider it, really. They knocked that on the head very quickly. A um, couple of things to this which struck me. Well, one, I guess COVID protocols make the prospect of a double header, which already has a lot of logistical issues attached to it, make them even more complicated. So I get it from that point of view. I suppose the other side of the equation, though, is given how flexible 
or agile and flexible as they were saying the AFL was able to be on the fixturing front last year, wouldn't this have been a good um, example of how they can uh, adopt the same attitude again when there were games that, uh, I guess, outgrew where they were originally scheduled for? You know, that said, I don't think Essendon Hawthorne's any more attractive a proposition as a game now than it was when the fixture was released. So why is Essendon throwing this up so late in the piece? Um, just seems a bit, you know, it was never going to happen this close to the actual game happening. So uh, the timing is a bit strange on that one. You know, within 48 hours, I think Essendon's been incredibly stupid and incredibly clever. I cannot believe that they came up with this nonsense. COVID restrictions mean that stadiums not only have to be sort of more sparsely populated, we're talking about half crowd size, but we know that there's requirements for cleaning and preparation for a game that might be a little bit more conscious of COVID requirements than previously. So the idea of virtually a double header to be played is absolute nonsense. And as you said, these two teams uh, hardly have a trajectory towards the top of the ladder that have been enhanced by the first round of scratch matches. So why on earth Essendon have come up with this at the last minute is quite simply stupid. So that was their stupidity in 48 hours. But then they did something really smart, Rowan. And I reckon their addition to the list is an absolute ripper, Alec Waterman. Yeah, well... Strange. You're a fan of his at the West Coast Eagles, but they picked him up. He's kicked four goals against Carlton in a losing performance. And all of a sudden, Essendon's forward line to me looks a whole lot better with the prospect of Alec Waterman playing with them. I've got to say, I watched that Essendon-Carlton game by the live stream and um, he, I, I didn't remember him being that strongly built. Uh, and it's interesting because his father, Chris, of course, former West Coast Premiership player, was talking about just how uh, laid low he was by a really bad bout of glandular fever. Um, and his two years on the Eagles list were marked by constant uh, illness and injury and unavailability. So we never really got a chance to see him. But, boy, he's a, he's a strongly built boy. But what I liked most about him, Finey, what a beautiful kick of the footy. Now, remembering Chris Waterman, he was a beautiful kick of the footy. So on one level, it's not that big a surprise. But it made me think, I mean, he kicked four goals. Every kick was absolutely uh, split the middle and just a beautiful, fluid kicking action and uh, it made me think, gee, there must be some dodgy kicks on that list because it, it just really stood out like you know what. So very strongly built, uh, certainly not key position size, more that medium forward size. But uh, yeah, look, it, it's and it's a, it's turning the clock back a bit, isn't it? The prospect of a guy comes onto the list at the 11th hour and then all of a sudden you're thinking not only could this guy be part of the best 22, but could actually play really important role. So I've got to say my red and black colours showing um, was pretty happy about them signing him up. Um, good call. Good call. Uh, all right, let's keep moving. Um, I guess the other thing we need to talk about and uh, more unsavoury 
um, behaviour, if you like. But uh, I thought this story got underplayed a bit too by the news organisation which ran it. But Michael Warner had, I thought, a pretty good story in the Herald Sun talking to Andrew Cracker at length about his experiences at Collingwood. And uh, sorry, Collingwood fans, you might be getting sick of this story, but uh, tough because it's a very... Racism in football is an insidious thing that uh, we haven't even come close to really eliminating. I think recent events have underlined that. And his recounting of his time at Collingwood, one example in particular where he overheard some locker room banter with teammates um, standing nearby, and I'm not going to use the word that was used, but a real sort of 1950s-type reference to an Indigenous person as part of a so-called joke. And he says he approached the the three people who were uh, involved in telling this tale and uh, two of them scarpered and the other one sort of uh, told him not to worry about it. It was, it was just laughs, you know, and uh, it's those sort of attitudes that make you think we've really got a long way to go. I found it quite depressing. I found it even more depressing uh, well, first of all, the fact that the Herald Sun opened that story to reader comments. I think uh, media organisations have to be more responsible for that. You know what's going to happen if you open up a story like that for editorial comment. And you might say to me at this point, free speech. Well, not all speech is free, and particularly not when it's a sort of stuck crap that people were writing in the comments section. Uh, that also said to me, we've got a long way to go because so many of the comments, the responses were, oh, you know, it was back in 2012 or it's just names, get over it, or we've all got to move on. Now, well, it's easy for people to say if they're not the offended party, they're not part of the race or generation which is constantly subjected to this. Uh, we're seeing similar sort of attitudes on display in Canberra at the moment with regards to women in politics. And um, sexism isn't the same sort of thing as racism, but the same sort of paternalistic and sort of self-centred attitudes are coming out. And uh, they're proving very hard to change thinking on. And I think the more I read stories like the Andrew Cracker one, and last week, Joel Wilkinson, the former Gold Coast player, he's story as well, um, they're quite depressing about the extent of the issue that still lies before us finally. That's my take on it anyway. What's yours? Yeah, it was depressing to read about it. Rowan, I'm, I've got to say, at AFL level and AFLW level, I do feel that we've come a fair And whilst the story still needs to be read and processed and learnt from, I'd be aghast if there was a similar incident in 2021. And it, it goes to education, both at Clubland and beyond, at schools and young people today have a very different way of thinking. And they'll, I'll, I'll be expanding on this in Life Hacks actually a little bit, but it again is a I hope it, it just serves as a another reminder a salient reminder from the far from the distant dim past of course from our recent history as to how 
easy it is to offend and how that offence cuts deep and really affects the people who it is either intentionally or unintentionally aimed at. And, yeah, I'd like to... I do believe that football has come a long way. And as I said, I'd be aghast to imagine that it could possibly be recreated in 2021. And let me say this. If it does happen in football again, there are no excuses. There are no, you know, we we didn't realise or the world's changing and we didn't get the memo. I really believe if we have instances similar to this in the modern game, on or off the field, the stick has to be brought out. It has to be brandished and it has to be used. And I'm talking about long-term suspensions for people who partake in such behaviour. You know, the line in the sand was drawn a while ago and everybody now understands what is required in a workplace, especially a multicultural workplace like the AFL, in terms of respect for your fellow workmates. Yeah, I, I think inside the game is sort of ahead of the curve. And I, I think that's got a lot to do with, you know, educational programs that players go through. But number least, the fact that their Indigenous players now comprise more than 10% of the uh, the roster of AFL players. So um, it's I think you can argue that players in the AFL system have more exposure to Indigenous people and Indigenous culture than people outside. What continues to frustrate me is like, for example, with the Joel Wilkinson story, I was having a look at the reader comments at the end of that story. And it was like more than half the responses were people saying, oh, come on, this was back in 2013. It was a different time. Well, really? I mean, you know, when you consider that the Nicky Widmer incident was 1993 and Michael Long was 1995, you're trying to say that attitudes were significantly um, regressive only seven, eight years ago? I, I don't buy that. And to me, that's, you know, platitudes like that are too often a, a cover for people not to have a look at their own sort of attitudes and examine their own conscience. And ultimately, this is about putting yourself in other people's shoes and forget this issue per se or, or what's going on in Canberra at the moment with regards to women. That is, I think, almost society's biggest problem. There's just not enough people prepared to empathise. And, and by that, I mean the true meaning of empathy, which is to put yourself in another person's situation. And... Um, we're just not going to progress on a lot of these issues unless more people are prepared to do that, I think. Anyway, uh, I, I agree with you entirely. I, I think, uh, you know, the time for tolerance is well and truly run out. And, uh, you know, if we see more of this stuff happening, the action has to be uh, swift and decisive, certainly on the player front. All right. Uh, last thing on the agenda for last but not least on the news agenda, it is to talk AFLW finey and uh, this season continues to be a cracker. We've had five rounds played now. Uh, I guess the big news out of round five was Collingwood uh, going from strength to strength at the moment. And in fact, they are now the AFLW's only unbeaten team. They made a bit of a mess of Melbourne who did look impressive until a couple of weeks ago, but the Demons starting to falter a bit. But the Pies now 
a game clear on top of the ladder, five from five. Um, coming in behind them, a cluster of four teams all on four wins. That is Brisbane, Fremantle, Adelaide, Western Bulldogs. And uh, yes, the Dockers came massively unstuck at home, no less, uh, against Brisbane, who are looking better and better. That was a really gritty, tough, low-scoring encounter, but Brisbane prevailing in that one, 3-7, defeating Fremantle, a paltry one goal eight. I think one of the highlights of uh, round five AFLW2 finding for most people was Richmond finally posting its first ever win in a season and a half of AFLW competition and an emphatic win it was over Geelong, nine goals, 660, defeating the Cats 2-1-13. And uh, that great theme song, um, we heard the female version of that belted out with all the passion and further that we hear the men and uh, supporters of the men's code belting that out after a Tiger win. It was uh, great stuff. Katie Brennan, very impressive. She's really turned her form around in the last couple of weeks and uh, an absolute star of the AFLW code. And boy, she has been absolutely prolific all season is... Monique Conti, Finey, very, very impressive indeed. What caught your eye out of AFLW last weekend? Oh, well, if you're talking about eye, I've got to start with something that both you and I tweeted about. Adelaide absolutely putting St Kilda to the sword, but it was hard watching, wasn't it? That was oh. one of the worst jumper clashes of all time. That was the worst jumper clash of all time. I turned on the TV and I could not believe it um it's funny no one sort of i haven't seen any sort of follow-up as to actually what happened but it was very very clearly a um a misstep or an oversight of course the fact that it was the indigenous round and everyone was playing in special jumpers clearly had something to do with it and the fixtures being organized without much notice too but uh yeah that was jumper clash one zero one that uh that one geez it was hard to tell them apart. Well, hopefully that's St Kilda's excuse anyway, because they got absolutely smashed by the Crows, didn't they? Adelaide 8-13, 61, defeating St Kilda, just 1-2-8. Adelaide's been a perennial in AFLW, and uh, they dropped off a little bit last year, but looks like they're back with a vengeance in 2021, finally. Yeah, real powerhouse. Phillips playing fantastic football. You know, I was sort of looking at, at some of these star players in AFLW and it's interesting how quite a few of these young stars are of Greek or Italian background. Um, we've got Prasparkas um, for Carlton, um, the young St Kilda midfield, um, similar name. Patrikios, Georgia Patrikios. Yeah. Uh, there's Monique Conti. So both of those young Greek girls, and there are a couple of others, uh, of Greek background, I should say. Um, Monique Conti, Italian. There's the North Melbourne forward, Abitangelo. Abba, Abba Abba, yeah, Angelo. yep. Uh, Italian background. And it's just interesting how young girl, these young girls with European backgrounds have really taken to AFLW. That's a good observation, actually. And I, as you began to say it, I started thinking, 
you know what? The cultural stereotypes might have changed a bit because, well, I my first long-time partner was of Italian extraction. And I think uh, perhaps back in the 80s, there was still a quite paternalistic attitude towards um, Italian and Greek girls and uh, sport certainly wasn't seen as a priority. So uh, that has turned around. Yeah, I, I think that is a, a very good observation, actually. Um, where where do you see this AFLW premiership headed? As I said, Collingwood out again, clear. But Brisbane, Fremantle, Adelaide, and increasingly too, should mention them, the Western Bulldogs. They've been super impressive over the um, over the last few weeks, particularly. And one uh, very Anglo-Saxon name, of course, Ellie Blackburn has been a key to that. She's been absolutely terrific for the Bulldogs in recent games. So uh, who, who's your flag favourite at this stage? I reckon the Crows. I just think they've got a fantastic mix of powerhouse forwards, great on ballers and... Yeah, I, I find them a very professional outfit, Adelaide. Okay, well, we have uh, been on the bandwagon a bit, but uh, AFLW has just been terrific to watch this year. So, again, I'd say if you haven't uh, taken the opportunity to watch the girls and women in action, do yourself a favour. I think if you haven't seen it for a while, you'd be impressed at just how rapidly the standard has improved. All right, there's enough for news this week. Plenty going on there and plenty going on in our tortured minds, Finey, as we muse on matters of life. Life Hacks, building a better world. Okay, I'm going to kick us off and um, on a, sorry, but an appropriately sombre note, um, some... Uh, tragic news on Tuesday with the passing of an icon, not only of Australian music, but uh, an icon, I think it's fair to say, of the country. He's a man who uh, really, in some ways early on, single-handedly um, propelled Australian music into a place of importance, but uh, he got involved in a number of activities beyond the music scene. Of course, he was a, a passionate fan of your club, St Kilda, Finey, and I'm talking about uh, Michael Gadinsky, who sadly passed away in his sleep on Monday evening at the age of 68. I think there's something about a guy like Gadinsky. He just seems to be this huge force of life. Uh, anyone who ever dealt with him would uh, attest to the fact that he was a, a bundle of energy and always his mind racing and uh, sometimes finding it hard to sort of focus on something for too long because his mind would be racing on to the next thing. But uh, a bloke who became a music promoter very early in life, I think he was uh, might not even have been 20 when he first got involved. He helped set up the Sunbury Music Festival. He um, began to manage a couple of uh, early Australian rock acts, the likes of uh, Matt Taylor. Uh, he set up Mushroom Records, which struggled very early in the piece and then hit pay dirt with the signing and release of Skyhook's debut album, Living in the 70s, and then uh, 1974 we're talking about here, and then the follow-up, Ego is Not a Dirty Word. And, uh, of course, the absolute big-ticket item, 
a little bit later on, uh, none other than soapy actress Kylie Minogue. And I don't think many people would have anticipated, even he didn't anticipate Kylie becoming the scale of uh, international success that she became, um, became the face behind Frontier Touring, a, uh, a company which was responsible for bringing a lot of huge international acts to these shores. And it was really uh, in the catalogue of tributes to Michael uh, yesterday, finally, you couldn't help noticing the scale of uh, performers getting in on the act. We saw uh, heartfelt tributes from Bruce Springsteen, from Foo Fighters, from uh, Faith No More. Uh, I'm sure, I mean, they're just a couple that I like, so uh, I notice those ones. But um, he was an incredibly well-known figure internationally as well as in Australia. And uh, I've got to say, on footyology too, Francis Leach, our very own Francis Leach, wrote a wonderful tribute to Michael Gadinsky, which is still up on footyology. So check that out if you haven't seen it. But um, yeah, some, I, I guess, passings you're not that surprised by, and some you are. And I think this one definitely was in the latter category. Finally, he just seemed an indestructible force, Michael Gadinsky, and he's going to be very sadly missed by a lot of people. Yeah, heck of a shock. As you say, a big fan of the St Kilda Football Club. Also, man after my own heart, loved his horse racing and uh, recently had been involved in ownership through Jerry Ryan and others of a couple of Melbourne Cup winners and got great joy out of that. And apparently was, you know, no less active business-wise a couple of days ago than he had been throughout his life. So, yeah, that came as a huge shock to, as you say, all Australians, not just music lovers. And there's been a bit of a talk of a, a state funeral. How's that progressed? Uh, I haven't seen any update on that, but uh, I know, um, I think Daniel Andrews was a, a personal friend as well. It just seems he's one of those people who everyone had something to do with at uh, some stage. So, um, yeah, look, condolences to the whole Gadinsky clan and Michael's uh, closest friends. But certainly in terms of legacies left, um, they don't come a lot larger than the imprint he stamped on. Uh, this country, in this city of Melbourne, where we are finding in particular. So, um, yeah, sad day indeed with the loss of Michael Gadinsky. Okay, what is your first life hack? Well, it's a, a serious one and sort of one that just makes you scratch your head and wonder how far we've come. I don't know if you've seen in the last couple of days, Thomas Sewell, who is the self-proclaimed leader of white Australia. Interesting character, Thomas Sewell. I think he private school sort of background from around Surrey Hills, hardly the sort of breeding ground you'd imagine for a white supremacist, but a story on him on a current affair and he chose to go down to the offices of the current affair in Melbourne with a compadre and ended up assaulting a security guard. So that's made news. And it just got me thinking about these nefarious right-wing groups, these white power groups, neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klaners, whatever you want to call them. They are really 
to me anachronistic and, and I know we shouldn't downplay the danger of such groups forming and what they can do to society. But let's be honest. First of all, they're almost foolhardy. They, they stand around chanting white power, white power, you know, white pride, white pride, white pride. Yet they cover their faces. And, and there were plenty of shots of them at Hall's Gap recently and some camping trip they went on. And all sounds a little homoerotic to me. 40 or 50 men gathering in the foothills of the Grampians for a camping trip and a, and a um, marching excursion. Bit odd, really. But they all had to cover their faces. So where's your white pride, men? How proud are you? Honestly, how proud are you of your actions and your behaviour that you cover your faces and don't want to be seen? You know what you're embarrassed of? You're not embarrassed of the rest of the world seeing you. You're embarrassed of your family seeing you, of your sons, your daughters, your wives, your cousins, your mothers, your fathers. So it's not really that noble a pursuit if you've got to cover your face. Let's be honest, part one. And part two, many of the doctrines that they adhere to, the old canards of racism, anti-Semitism, uh, anti-Black sort of historical rhetoric really go back decades if not almost a century they are age old and quite honestly in a diverse world such as the one that we live in i challenge any of these halfwits to tell me that they live a truly white life and aren't contradicting themselves every day so tell me this white pride heroes do you ever get any takeaway you ever had chinese food because if you have, contradiction. Any of you drive a non-Australian car, given that we don't make cars in Australia anymore, there's a good chance you do or you will, contradiction. Put down your mobile phones. That's made by the Yellow Peril, I think. Asian made most mobile phones, aren't they? Contradiction, 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 contradiction. You want to live in an all-white world? Stay at the foot of the Grampians build a, you know, go off grid, find a few like-minded mates to do so and build your own empire out of sticks and stones because the real world is way too diverse to live a life that's truly white and bleached of any other culture. Basically, it's impossible. So grow up. Uh, very well put, Farney. Uh, I echo those sentiments entirely. I think, in fact, a bit of a segue to my next life hack, I think one of the issues uh, of racism in this country is it's it's helped being normalised by uh, certain media outlets which have given a lot of these people a platform. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget, uh, it was only a couple of years ago, the night that uh, Blair Cottrell, who is probably even more notorious than Thomas Sewell in those uh, white supremacist ranks, was uh, interviewed on uh, Sky News as a, a sort of serious spokesman on, on matters of race. I mean, these are extremists, and once upon a time, they were treated as such and not given the, uh, the vehicles to spew forth their hatred and, and venom. Um, and in the quest for... Uh, ratings and clickbait and whatever. I think a lot of that's, uh, you know, previously unexposable stuff has been 
normalised. Uh, and in that sense, I think the media has got to be a lot more responsible than it has been. Uh, why is that a segue? Because my second life hack is about social media. I do talk about it a lot. But one thing which really irks me about social media, and I'm, I've noticed it more and more in recent times, is the number of journalists who get on platforms like Twitter especially and tweet very provocative things or, or um, promote something they've said on TV or a column that they've written um, for a news site, tweet something provocative about it that they know is going to get a response, stand back and watch the enraged reaction and then sort of have second dibs off that by writing about social media outrage. Now, name names, there's one who is absolutely notorious for doing this, and his name is Chris Ullman, and he is the chief political correspondent for Channel 9, and now because Channel 9 owns the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, he regularly writes columns in those papers. And uh, he did it again um, the other day with a piece about, um, well, the controversy in uh, Canberra at the moment about those historical allegations of rape against a cabinet minister and uh, Brittany Higgins, a former Liberal Party staffer and her issues, which have been well publicised. But um, he wrote a column all about, you know, fairness and the wheels of justice and whatever. But he's always acting like it is the Twitter mob who is threatening these um uh, unshakable principles and in this case that was absolute abs actually sort of dumping a load on his colleagues uh, because it's the likes of uh, Samantha Maiden for example who credit where it's due she works for News Corp um, they've been doing the most incisive reporting on the, these horrible stories about the treatment of women in uh, in Canberra in the political scene so it hasn't been something that's been drummed up by a outraged social media mob. It's been off the back of factual reporting. And uh, this is pretty disingenuous stuff by Allman and by a lot of, he's not the only one. There's a lot of journos that do this. They tweet something provocative, get a suitably enraged response and then sit back and cry, um, cry wolf about the sort of reaction that that provocation brings and uh it's hypocritical and i think journalists need to have a thicker skin than that and uh i think they need to uh, be prepared to cop it as well as dish it out that's what social media is about if you don't like that get off it you know you can't have your cake and eat it too in terms of wanting the platform and to promote your work and then not be able to cope with a bit of negative feedback so uh take that how you will i'm sure there's a few people listening to this and thinking oh you can talk well you know, I, I don't think I'm a I'm a noted blocker or muter of people on Twitter, and I'm prepared to discuss an issue as long as it doesn't get overly personal. I think people like Ullman are way too sensitive on that and easily find scapegoats where none actually exist. That is my second life hack finding. Yours, please. Okay, mine is a word that frustrates me no end because of its misuse, and that is the word irony. And I want to, for once and for all, give people the definition of irony so we don't have it misused. Irony is the gap between what is expected to happen and what actually happens based 
on a set of circumstances or on something that has happened. Now, what does that mean? Here's my example. If Rowan Connolly played football for Essendon, but played his first 10 games for St Kilda, and when he played his 100th game of league football, it was for Essendon against St Kilda, how many commentators do you reckon would come up with this? Well, Rowan Connolly's lining up for his 100th game of league football today, and ironically, it's against the team he first played for, St Kilda. But that's not ironic. It's not ironic at all because there would be no expectation when Rowan played his first game for St Kilda that he would play his 100th game against St Kilda. They're simply not two connecting pieces of uh, history or, or, or occasions. But I bet you many commentators would say it's ironic that he plays his 100th game against St Kilda. So... That's my little lesson in irony. Does it make sense, Rowan? It does make sense, but I cannot believe that you gave that lesson without uh, mentioning the single biggest culprit on that score from popular culture history. And her name is Alanis Morissette, Finey. And uh, well, of course, everybody always refers to, <laughs> isn't it ironic, and Alanis? <laughs> I don't think there's a single example she gives in that song that actually is ironic. Is that ironic? But that is that the irony? <laughs> I think that is the irony. Maybe, maybe she was ahead of headers of ahead of us all on that front. Um, all right, my final life hack, and again, I'm talking about social media, and this is ironic, Fidey. Uh, I find it incredibly ironic that uh, two social media giants that are Facebook and Google, um, and of course they've been in the news for their negotiations with Australian media outlets um, about uh, payment for services rendered. Um, but isn't it ironic, as Alanis would put it, that those two organisations, despite being in the communications industry, um, have people working for them who are harder to track down than just about anyone on the planet? I reckon I could go out and search for the last uh, Bushman of the Kalahari and uh, have more trouble find, uh, less trouble finding him than I have had tracking down certain executives at both Google and Facebook. And this is the thing, Facebook, you want to actually talk to a specific human being, good luck with that. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. You just, no one in executive positions there seemingly is contactable, much less accountable. There are, I won't name them, but there are certain executives at both those organisations I've been trying to reach for the last week. Uh, you've got to be better than Colombo to even get an email address for them. And then you can send them an email, no guarantee of a response. I've tried direct messaging on Twitter. I've tried Facebook itself. Um, I've tried Google Apps, I've tried LinkedIn. I have tried every bloody thing. These people simply will not respond. And uh, yes, that absolutely is the definition of irony when you're in the instant communication business, which social media is supposed to be, and you make yourself less contactable than bloody Howard Hughes was to generations of people in the United States. 
Say, come on, Google and Facebook executives, get out of your uh, cocoons and actually start interacting with the odd human being, will you? It's bloody frustrating. All right. That's a semi-rant, but uh, I've got a rant coming up. All right, your final life hack, please. Well, this is certainly not connected to any of the ones we've done previously. Where do you stand on bananas? Are you a banana eater? Well, I try not to stand on them I, um, because, uh, you know, the inevitable <laughs> what happens there. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I like bananas a lot, but a significant but, funny, they have to be fresh. They have to have even a tinge of green. They have to be firm. I don't like bananas that have uh, got even a little bit of bruising on them. I find them hard to swallow. Okay. Because well, I'm not a banana man. I, I would never grab a banana and eat a whole banana. But somewhat paradoxically, when I have fruit salad, it has to have banana in it. Because banana is the creamy counterpoint to the juiciness of the rest of the fruit salad. And it just, to me, is a necessity. So we sort of find ourselves making a fair bit of fruit salad at home. We go through a bit of fruit. We try and keep as much healthy eating on the menu as possible. And because none of us eat bananas, there's no banana in the fruit salad. And I really have been causing a ruckus lately because, you see, you know, it can have watermelon. So our fruit salad, let's say, of late, has had some watermelon in it, some orange some apple, some grape halves, but they're all from the juicy world of fruits. And I just need a bit of creamy banana in it to counterbalance all that juiciness. And the rest of the family has basically told me to go and F myself. You know, we don't eat bananas. I said, yes. You know, well, let's go and get F, not F myself. They're not that rude. Um, but they've given me the big middle finger and said, no one here likes bananas. Why would we put banana in our fruit salad? And I can't seem to explain to them how important it is to have bits of banana in fruit salad, even if you don't like banana. Am I mental? Have I gone insane? No, no, I no. Like... I, I get this. I absolutely get that. It's the um, acidity of the fruit, of the uh, juicy fruit yeah, has to be ca counteracted. Uh, no, I think you're spot on. I think any self-respecting fruit salad should have bananas. Uh, I'll give you a, a tip. Yes, that, yes. I, I'll give you a tip for the inexperienced, though, Finey, and this is a, a trap for young players. When you do chop up, slice your banana and put it in the fruit salad, uh, if you're intending to leave any at all, make sure that that banana has been coated in lemon juice. Because if not... Yeah, acidulated they will go brown not only in hours, in literally seconds if they're put in the fridge and they're not coated with the um, acidity of a squeezed lemon. Uh, composition of fruit salad, that is a really important subject. I must say I blanched a bit when you said orange and apple. A fan of orange and apple, not in fruits. My perfect fruit salad consists, it's a simple concoction, it consists of strawberries, blueberries, banana, and green grapes. Uh, maybe a squeeze of passion fruit and a squeeze of lemon juice across the top. I like berries. I'm big on berry salads. Always counteracted with the creaminess of a banana.
I think you're uh, I think you're on something here, Fanny, and this is something which we should discuss more fully in a subsequent episode. Yeah, thank you. And uh, look, berries are great. When I say oranges and apples, it's really at the end of the week to sort of um, make sure that we're not binning our oranges and apples. They're going into the fruit salad. I mean, there is a, to me, there's a, a lurking troublemaker in a fruit salad. What's that? The Chinese gooseberry or oh, kiwi fruit. Yes. Not a fan. Yeah, he sort of mushes up and, well, I find he's easily mushed. And no, I'm not a fan. I, I, I wonder where its taste really lies. What are you, Chinese gooseberry, straight kiwi fruit? Are you a friend or are you a foe? Are you tart? Are you sweet? Are you seedy or sinewy? I don't know what you are, but you're certainly no friend to my fruit salad. And I want you replaced with banana, but my family seems to be all gooseberry and no banana. And, and, and you know, here's what they say: if you want it creamy, have some yogurt with it. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a standalone creamy on on entree. You know, a, a, a counterpoint, a, a, a balancing of flavors. I'm very strong on this, and I think I need to move in with you, Rowan, because nobody here's letting me banana my fruit salad. And then we can investigate uh, how that fruit you just described came to be known as both a Chinese gooseberry and a kiwi fruit, because uh, they are at fairly opposite ends of the spectrum, I would have thought. Um, I can't believe we just talked for about eight and a half minutes about the composition of fruit salad, but there you go there. That is the wide gamut of topics covered on this podcast. Time now. To get back to can I just uh, say one thing? Of course you can. Because we're going to, well, we're going to get some communication on this. There's no doubt we'll get some feedback, and there will be one fruit named over and over. But I'm telling you, the standard of this fruit has dropped in recent years to the point where blandness has overtaken flavour, and no rock melon, straight cantaloupe, will enter my fruit salad because of the current quite parlous state of the flavour of the local rock melon, stroke cantaloupe. Okay, yeah, I can't actually eat rock melon. It gives me a sore throat for some reason. But uh, I thought you were going to say strawberries because I've got no doubt strawberries are not what they used to be. As the tomatoes, well, we all know. Uh, no self-respecting yeah, right. tomato from the 1970s would be caught dead among the inferior... Yeah, here, we've got to stop talking about this stuff. Okay, we're getting back to basics on this show. <laughs> Because coming up next is our new segment. Here it is. Fantastic footy flashbacks. How good is that, Fanny? Do you like that theme? Doesn't it take you back? That was a great opener. Oh, fantastic footy flashbacks. Well, we may have run out of years for vinyl and video, but uh, in terms of great football memories, uh, there are so many to choose from. And uh, I'm interested to see what you come up with first and uh, what I've come up with first. And I, I don't know, this may be a trend. I may just haul out some weird and wonderful stuff from other football competitions, not just the premier football competition in Milan. I don't know why this one that I'm going with this week occurred to me, but it uh, it just did. I would like to uh, revisit 
this week in my first uh, fantastic footy flashback, the 1976 VFA grand final between Port Melbourne and Dandenong And anyone who was a follower of the old VFA competition would know that this was a brawl for the ages. And uh, why do I remember it so vividly? Well, a number of reasons. I barracked for Port Melbourne as a kid growing up with the VFA on TV every Sunday. And I went to this game with two of my mates. It was the first VFA grand final I had been to. It was at the Junction Oval. And do you reckon they packed them in? They packed them in. I have the official crowd here from that game. 32,137 turned up to the VFA grand final on Sunday, the 19th of September, 1976. It was so packed on the terraces of a junction oval that me and my two grade six mates had to uh, clamber up on top of a small little pie stand that was there. But it was a beautiful spot to watch the game. Uh, it was a game won convincingly by Port Melbourne, 1918-132 to Dandenong, 10-15. 75, but it is a game remembered most for the absolute carnage which broke out during the second quarter. And it began with uh, Freddie Cook, that superstar of the VFA, Port Melbourne spearhead, getting absolutely smashed by his Dandenong opponent, Alan Harper. Alan Harper wasn't finished there because he uh, proceeded to also as North, uh, North Melbourne, Port Melbourne captain coach Norm Brown was running past, just throw out a little, not little, a massive swinging round arm on his uh, left arm, which laid big Norm Brown uh, flat on his back. And uh, it was absolute carnage broke out after Fred Cook and Norm Brown were decked. Uh, Dandy Long star Pat Flaherty got absolutely decked completely at the other end of the ground. Uh, Dandy Long runner Eddie Meloy, who wasn't playing, was acting as runner. He got involved in a box on. Uh, there was an old Port Melbourne trainer. Uh, what was his name again? Uh, Thomas, I think. Um, he got involved. The uh, Port Melbourne doctor, uh, a young lady, they commentators, Phil Gibbs and Ted Henry's made a big deal of that, the fact that Port Melbourne had a female doctor. Woo. And uh, it was carnage. It was going on all over the place. Port Melbourne star Tony Hayden was actually a reporter for striking an umpire, um, which didn't happen. I think an umpire just got sort of bowled over in the middle of this chaos going on. Um, but here's some of the, um, the results of all the uh, Tatar Tates. Uh, Hainan reported for striking the boundary umpire. Uh, Buster Harland of Port Melbourne fame reported for striking Alan Harper, who ended up with his jaw broken. Uh, it was basically for him after those two incidents, uh, like it was for Alistair Clarkson, playing for North Melbourne in that Battle of Britain against Carlton in 1987. Greg Dermott was reported for kneeing Harper. Sammy Holt for Port was reported for striking David Drosher of Dandenong. Uh, Mel Allen reported for striking uh, Bill Thompson of Dandenong. Uh, 
Um, Frosty Miller, the Dandenong full forward, uh, he suffered a broken foot. Alan Harper with that broken jaw. David Drosher was uh, suspended for striking Semi Holt. Uh, Brian Shinners, uh, reporter for striking Thomas, the Port Melbourne trainer. He got four weeks for that. Uh, Eddie Mihai was suspended, cop this, for six weeks for using abusive language. Wow, that must have been some sort of stream of invective to earn a six-week suspension. Um, Freddie Cook got uh, knocked clean into next week, but uh, recovered and played on and ended up kicking five goals, six. I think uh, Norm Brown suffered a broken nose and lost teeth. Alan Harper, the broken jaw. Uh, all captured uh, courtesy of Channel O, who used to, uh, the old Channel O, who used to uh, cover the VFA. And uh, fortunately for everyone here, this has all been captured memorably on YouTube. Uh, there's quite a package of it, and there's some football played in amongst all this stuff. But uh, let's have a listen now to uh, the heat of battle between Port Melbourne and Dandenong in the 1976 VFA Grand Final. Cook's been flattened, and it's wide on. Harper is in trouble. And look at the players going downfield. The umpires are there. Let's watch this. And it's on. Another player is flattened the other end of the ground. Flaherty's been flattened at the other end of the ground. And there's another one down at the other end. A train has gone down. And Eddie Melee's uh, standing around. In the middle, there's another fight on in the middle of the ground. Oh, look at this slinging match. Flaherty has a one into the ground in the hands of the trainers. In this bunch of uh, players, there's another player in the hands of the trainers. And then further downfield, further downfield, we have a big bunch of players. All I can see is, wow. I mean, I remember that grand final really well, Rowan. And it was a time when I had two loves, football and world championship wrestling with Jack Little. And that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon, they both seemed to come together in one pretty explosive grand final, wasn't it? Who was your VFA team, Finey? Well... At that stage, it actually was Dandenong because of a bit of a connection with St Kilda. But later on, I became a very big Caulfield fan. And, in fact, my beautiful pet Whippet Snowy for two years was the Caulfield Club mascot and used to run on the ground when Caulfield ran on the ground at home. <laughs> uh, yes, good days. Yeah, there are a few people that had sort of short-lived VFL careers that thrived in the... Uh, in the environment of the VFA. Port Melbourne had a lot of, uh, well, they had a strong connection with South Melbourne, didn't they? Tony Hainan had played yep. for South Melbourne. Later, we saw people like Vic Annanson, and then we saw uh, some go the other way, like Stephen Allender, of course, uh, friend of yes, the program, Stephen Allender. He ended up, uh, we ended up at Hawthorne, but started at South Melbourne after being at Port. Uh, a few more come to mind for you? Well, actually, I'll, I'll test you because there were a few out of that clip that you played, Alan Harper, do you know where he played some AFL or VFL football? Oh, I think he was one of your Sanders, wasn't he? Yeah, he made up a, a rather threatening backline for a while there with Barry Lawrence and Jim O'Day. There, oh, Eddie Mealy, the runner, 
Now, he had a couple of games, even though he played for Dandenong. Do you know who he played for in the VFL? Uh, was this South Melbourne? Spot on. Going well. Frosty Miller, the full forward. Bit oh, he was at... Uh, forward. Yeah, he, he, was, he started at Carlton. That's correct. And... I mean, as you said, most of the uh, Port Melbourne players were South Melbourne connected. How about the great Freddie Cook? Oh, he was, was a, a back... he was a bulldog, Freddie Cook, and a backman at that. Yes, yeah, yeah. and a half back. So yeah. there you go, spot on. Great 100%. old, great old competition. All right, well, uh, that's uh, set the standard for this new segment, Finey. Looking forward to your debut in Fantastic Footy Flashbacks. What do you got for us? I've got the year 1990, and I want to I actually throw to Mark of the Year. So let's have a little listen to Mark of the Year in 1990. Here's kick, down towards half-forward flank. Mitchell! Oh! What a mark Michael Mitchell! That will be the Mark of the Year, in my opinion. That is sensational. Well, Rowan, that was 1990. Richmond versus Fitzroy, Mark of the Year. Good enough to win a car. For that spring heeled Jack from the Tigers, Michael Mitchell. I was there, Fanny. I was there. I know this is, you're going to have to put up with me saying this constantly during this segment, but uh, I covered that game for the age. And uh, also, well, I won't say memorable because it wasn't a big deal, but uh, believe it or not, um, that was on Anzac Day. We had uh, two games played on uh, that particular Anzac Day, which was a Wednesday. And uh, Richmond and Fitzroy was one of them. Got only 23,000 to the MCG. And the other game played simultaneously was between Carlton and Footscray at uh, Princess Park. And that only got 24,000. So uh, not a particularly big deal at all in 1990 Anzac Day. But yep, that Michael Mitchell mark taken uh, pretty much in front of us in the press box, actually, right on that member's wing. And what a grab that was. Anyway, I go on. I've got to say, not the greatest mark of the year of all time. And, I mean, that year there were marks by Nicky Winmar and a couple of others. It was open to the popular vote. So fans had to sort of be part of the voting process. And maybe the fact that Richmond had a lot more supporters and members than St Kilda stood them in good stead. Because not only did Michael Mitchell win mark of the year, all right, maybe it wasn't the greatest mark of all time. But have a listen to this, and I reckon this was one of the greatest goals of all time. Michael Mitchell again, this time at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Third bounce, he's running towards the 50. Oh. He wants to kick a goal, no question about that. Watch <laughs> this. I want a goal, Michael Mitchell says to himself. Oh, great effort. If there was any doubt about Mark of the Year, Rowan, there could be no doubt about Goal of the Year. One of the most famous goals of all time. Almost a at times disoriented Michael Mitchell uh, running, zigzagging his way through the Sydney cricket ground. One felt at one point that he was almost going in the wrong direction. He was going east-west rather than north-south, but he found himself again, one of the great goals of all time. It certainly was. He, you know, this game, uh, significant, well, not really significant, but the other notable thing about that game, Finey, it was the... Uh, very last game on the uh, 1990 fixture, the last scheduled game of the last round of the season at the SCG, 
Uh, Richmond won by 30 points, uh, just for the records, in front of a crowd. Boy, the Swans were struggling by then. A crowd of 7,180. So there are plenty of room for anyone who rolled up and did see, I agree, one of the most amazing uh, goals of all time. Geez, he was quick, wasn't he, Michael Mitchell? Uh, is yeah. quicker, quicker than young Petrocelli. <laughs> 7,000 people there to see seven bounces on the way to that goal. He was a, a real Spring Hill Jack. Michael Mitchell had taken a fantastic mark in the waffle where he virtually stood one-footed on an opponent's head. So it's no surprise that he would win mark of the year. Goal of the year may be less predictable, but he had to go into the studios of World of Sport to collect not one but two cars. That's not a bad morning's work, is it? <laughs> and Bruce McAvaney who we've previously spoken about, of course, on the program. Uh, Young-looking Bruce, only in his mid-30s, I guess, was talking effusively about uh, Michael Mitchell. And what I loved about the old world of sport was that he was sitting there, Michael Mitchell, and he was getting questions from off-camera. So the, the disembodied voice of Bob Davis came across and goes, uh, Michael, uh, you had a lot of injuries last year, so it must have been good to get on the on the paddock this year. And it was just funny the way you heard Bob Davis's question come from off camera. Nobody's saying that's Bob Davis or any sort of um, bowing to the procedures of television. None of the rules conform to because World of Sport was that sort of show. And to marry up with that, uh, a, a pretty modest bloke, Michael Mitchell. Do you know what he said when they came in the car or the no. cars? No. Uh, I just want to apologise, and I can't remember the name of the people. It was like, I just want to apologise to Mr. and Mrs. McIlrick. I was supposed to be at their, their child's christening this morning, so apologies. <laughs> <laughs> we should have given them a car, one of the cars to uh, compensate. Actually, I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, what was a really ordinary era for Richmond, they still had some bloody handy players. And I've just called up Michael Mitchell's record. He was at uh, at Punt Road for five seasons between 87 and 91. Only ended up with 81 games. And you look at that highlight reel and some of the things he did in WA and you think, wow, you know, if he had consistently played his best football, I mean, he should have been one of the stars of the competition in terms of ability. But... Uh, at least we got uh, the odd cameo like that. Spectacular stuff. Uh, all right, well done. I, I like uh, I like that example, Fanny. Uh, I think they're two interesting ones we've started with. The 1960, 1976 VFA Grand Final Brawl and Michael Mitchell's uh, double bunger of uh, mark and goal of the year. Uh, right off the top of your head, Fanny, who else has pulled off the mark and goal of the year double? Well, I can only think of Peter Bazusto, and you're constantly reminded of that by Peter Bazusto if you ever go to a sportsman's night. But 1981, of course, he did the double against Geelong. He took that magnificent mark in the home and away season over the top of, was it Big Mossop, the Ruckman? Uh, it might have been, I think, yep, at Prince's Park, yep, in the pocket, yep. That's right. And then in the final, he, he got goal of the year when he, that magnificent smother. Yep. Um, was was it Nan Curvis 
kicking the it, ball? It, it was a Nan Curvis. Might have been Bruce, I think. But, uh, yeah, smothered the yeah. kick, picked it up and smothered snapped the over kick his and shoulder. Smothered it up and, yeah, magnificent snap. So, I guess that's particularly unique. Same person against the same team getting Mark goal of the year. Imagine that the only way you could better that, imagine getting Mark and goal of the year in the same game. <laughs> well, uh, we we may see that happen. Who knows? Uh, all right. That is the debut of fantastic footy flashbacks. In fact, I'm so wrapped in that uh, sting we have for it. I reckon we might listen to it again just for this week. <laughs> Oh, that's a great sting. It's going to be hard not to play that repeatedly in subsequent shows. This one's a good sting too, and it's a good segment. Let's do it. On Footyology, the rant off. All right, let's get into it. Uh, As I keep saying, the season creeps ever closer, and uh, with the advent of a new season, so comes the advent of a lot of silly football discussion. And uh, that's something I'd like to address in my rant right now, if you will, please, Mark. 3-2, let the season begin. I'm pissed off with the football world's chicken little act, Finey. It doesn't matter what it is, when it's happening, or what the consequences might be. I even hint at the mere possibility of change in the AFL world And it's like the whole community, coaches, players and media alike, start clucking like your finest Ingham's family roast special just before it meets its maker. Nowhere is this more apparent yet again than in the initial response to the new man on the mark rule. And when I say initial, I don't mean when the rule was actually introduced and first publicised several months ago, because when that happened, our tunnel vision attention spans were focused on the cricket. And this part of it does always give me a laugh. In fact, I reckon Gill and his mates next December should just for a laugh say the following season they're going to require players on all away teams to run around with gorilla masks and their asses painted blue just to see if anyone's paying attention. I bet they'd get away with it. But it was pretty predictable the moment we had some scratch matches, Finey, that we were going to be served up a catalogue of overreactions to the new man on the mark rule. I don't think Kane Corns has yet deemed at the end of civilization as we know it, but surely that rant's coming. In the first weekend of scratch matches, there were roughly 2,000 times the new rule was enforced, and there were only six times a player moving on the mark was deemed to have encroached and penalised 50 metres. That's a pretty decent strike rate, I reckon. I mean, if players went at that sort of error rate with their kicking for goal, for example, we'd all be bloody wrapped. Of course, the examples highlighted all involved blokes standing about 15 metres out from goals. But do we see any highlighting of the instances where the new rules served its purpose? Of course not. And that's going to be when a player with the ball is a lot closer to the boundary and for the first time in years can actually look inside towards the central corridor and not have it look like Flinders Street Station at 5pm, making him kick down the line to yet another contest and yet another boundary throwing. Of all the rule tweaks we've seen in recent years attempting to open the game up, I reckon this one actually makes more sense than most and stands a better chance of actually having some impact. So can we hang on for at least 10 seconds to actually give it a go before we start freaking out about it? And as usual, the people complaining the loudest 
telling the Herald Sun readers' comment section they'll never go to another game. Are the same people saying they'll never go to another game because of the congestion and scrappy football this new rule is trying to fix. So you don't like the way footy looks these days, but you don't like that we're trying to do stuff to change the way footy looks these days? Okay, but I reckon there might just be some forward thinking about that particular stance. What's the betting that, like with most rule changes, after all the chicken littles have squawked themselves silent, the players will get it right, will see a handful of penalties from several thousand examples, and the same alarmists will find some other relatively inconsequential thing to panic about. And if we do see more than a handful of infringements, well, here's a little tip for players standing on the mark in 2021. Don't move. You're not six-year-old kids with attention deficit disorder. Standing still for a couple of seconds won't be the toughest challenge you face in your careers. No, because that'll be putting up with a sort of over-the-top hyperbole that we all have to go through before the start of a new season every bloody March. Different perspective there. I mean, a lot of people are really up in arms about the new rule. So I think it's one of those ones where players will make the compensation and will also get a little bit of a little bit more leeway from the umpires in the season proper. We'll barely notice that it's been enforced. Wait to see. All right. Okay. I had to get that one off my chest. I do think uh, there are some shocking overreactions going on about it. All right. I've got no idea what you're doing this week. I wait to be surprised and entranced. Three, two, one, rant. Yeah, apologies, Rowan, because I'm not ranting this week. Far from it. It's more a sort of pat on the back, a self-congratulatory pat on the back and a big congratulations to one woman. Now, the one woman is my wife, Natalie, and even a pat on the back for myself because by the time we go to air next week, we'll have celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Now, I know what a lot of people say. You get less for murder. And for many of those years, it probably has been murder for poor Natalie that has, in this partnership, certainly done most of the batting and faced off the new ball and done the, done the hard work, I reckon, taking the shine off the new ball ballers and letting me hit a few easy fours and sixes. But she's been fantastic. So to celebrate our 25th anniversary, and what have our achievements been? Well, I'll say this. Four kids, healthy and happy, two pets or two dogs that are alive, that's about the sum total of your achievements when you're married, I reckon. So to celebrate, we're going away for a few days down to Tasmania. And it's at that point that I realised whether or not our achievements are all that notable. Because the four kids we're leaving behind are being treated as though they are in intensive care, requiring more phone numbers, more pre-prepared meals, and more emergency scenarios being played out than an intensive care victim. We've organised Uber for them, and as a backup to Uber, Deliveroo, and as a backup to Deliveroo, my mother, and as a backup to my mother, my sister, all of that with frozen meals prepared in the freezer, enough bolognese to drown a navy, even the spaghetti's been pre-cooked for them, ravioli's been bought, Quite honestly, if they eat everything that is pre-prepared for them, they'll be able to survive not the four days we're away, but the next 25 years, hopefully, of our marriage. As for the two dogs, 
Emergency numbers have been plastered all over the house. The local vet, the emergency vet for really serious incidents, some animal hospital, not Lord Smith, something more private and expensive sounding. Again, every scenario covered in case one of the dogs trips up, cuts itself, or heaven forbid, develops kennel cough. As for the kids' own health, probably paid less attention to that, but still emergency numbers for doctors and hospitals. We're away for four days and come back, hopefully, to four children and two dogs. But given everything that we've put in place, I'm beginning to wonder whether our 20 years of marriage has achieved all that much at all. Four kids that can't look after themselves and two dogs expected to expire in a period of 96 hours. Hmm. As I said, maybe in the next 25 years, we might be able to achieve the impossible. Independent children and dogs that don't die. Uh, well done. I think we've uh, I think we've touched on this before, but uh, I'll I'll uh, say it again. I think Natalie deserves a VC for services rendered to marriage, and anyone who can put up for twenty five seconds with you in uh, marital bliss, let alone twenty five years, certainly deserves a reward. So make sure you treat her well. She has bloody worked hard for it, Fanny. There you uh, go. Uh, well done. I think we're also going to have to start calling you Mark Two Dogs Fine. Wasn't it uh, Kevin Costner in <laughs> Dances with Wolves? Wasn't he Two Dogs? Uh, wasn't anyway. that? Hang on, hang on. Wasn't Two Dogs um, Graham Kennedy's offside or John Mangos or something on the late night news? Or <laughs> the, oh, I don't know. Or Sutcliffe. Didn't he call Sutcliffe Two Dogs? Kenny Sutcliffe. I thought he was cardboard Kenny. Um, anyway, yeah. all right. Uh, no, entertaining, entertaining. All right, uh, we're just about done here, but uh, a quick thank you to our wonderful sponsors, Finey. Two dogs. Love those. Yeah, love those. Two dogs. Love those burgers at Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Great supporters of the program, as you, the listeners, are. So why not support the people that support us? And if you're in the market for a rebuild or a, a, a total build, Think of West Point Properties, Nick's Bartels, also in the southeast Melbourne suburbs. Otherwise known as Nick Two Houses Bartels. Um, he does a, a great job. Thanks to our wonderful sponsors. Thanks to you guys, as uh, per usual, for tuning in. Um, we say it every week, but uh, please, if you enjoy this podcast and you enjoy the written offerings on the Footyology website, you can support us either at the ACAST uh, supporter page wherever you're listening to this podcast or uh, via our Patreon uh, link uh, in various places on the Footyology website. Patreon, a great platform supporting independent media and God knows we need as much of that as we can get. So please uh, put your hand in your kit and see if you can spare us the odd uh, dollar or two it's for a very worthy cause for the sustenance of the families of both myself and Mark Two Dogs Fine. Uh, that is it for this week. Uh, thanks to your company. Have a good week, everyone, and uh, we'll see you later. Bye.